Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 152. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Here to talk about 1955's Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. This was a movie that my dad had shown me when I was a little kid, but I had not gone back to watch it until this week. Was this a film that you had seen prior to this week? Not even a little. See, and I'm surprised because, like, to me, this is something that would have been, like, right in your dad's wheelhouse, and he would have at least shown it to you and your brother at some point in time. Believe it or not, not my dad. My aunt is actually a very big Western fan. So I'm surprised, yeah, that it wasn't one that I watched if I was over there visiting. Right. Not that this is a, a Western in the classic sense, but for a Disney movie, it's as close as they come. What's funny to me, though, is that, and I mean, you could make the argument for how the education system has botched history time and time again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when I learned about Davy Crockett in school, it was always the folklore end of it. Like I learned about Davy Crockett in elementary school, not wow. in middle school, high school, when you get into like deep into American history. So for me, in my mind, he has always been lumped in with like Johnny Appleseed and Paul Bunyan, which is ridiculous <laughs> and horrible. It's not though. But, you know, it was it was interesting to to learn more about him. And of course, they Disney-fied it quite a bit. But um, it's just difficult sometimes to separate it in my mind that he is, in fact, a real person when he's lumped in with these legends. And I think it's interesting that they they did blend the man and the myth together in the film. I think a lot of people don't realize that he was a real person. I think a lot of people just think that he is a character in a book. Like you said, he's it's folklore. And th the tale of Davy Crockett has been told so many different ways. And some people will debate the truth to a lot of these stories. Listen, I wasn't there, so I can't vouch for the guy. Um, so there is some controversy around it. But I, more people than not probably think that Davy Crockett is just a character out of a book rather than somebody that came out of a legitimate history book. Right, because, you know, Paul Bunyan had the blue ox. You know it's a tall tale. With Davy Crockett, you learn about him gritting down a bear or wrestling a crocodile. It's not until you really learn about the Alamo where it's like, Oh, but he did so much more than that. Right. He served in the military. He was a politician. Like, he had a really interesting life. And I guess that's why people sort of clung to him and why he did become this thing of legend. I mean, he, he sort of, like, the myth. I mean, he's not, I mean, it's not a myth. He really did a lot of these things. But it seems like the hype around Davy Crockett almost seems bigger than the man itself. And that's why, of all people, Walt Disney, who really did love this country and loved American history, it would only make sense that he would want to tackle the tale of Davy Crockett. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. Davy Crockett and George Russell volunteer to help General Andrew Jackson fight off Native Americans during the Creek War, notably Chief Redstick, an adversary of the military. After returning home briefly to set his family up for the winter, Davy and George set off to continue fighting for the army, and George is soon captured by Redstick, but Davy bests him in combat, so George is set free, and Redstick signs a peace treaty. We also learn that Bigfoot uh, Mason has been taking land from the Native Americans, so Davy fights Bigfoot and arrests him for his crimes. Davy is then nominated by a judge to run for state legislature. He also receives a letter from his sister-in-law telling him that his wife Polly 
has passed away. Davy defeats crooked politician Amos Thorpe and is elected to the Tennessee General Assembly. He later learns that Major Norton has a controversial bill on the table to undo uh, the Native American Land Treaty. He goes to Congress and tears the bill up, basically putting his political career to bed. Uh, he and George then join the battle at the Alamo. George, as well as the other allies, are killed, leaving Davy to fend for himself. Uh, and it has a very open-ended conclusion, but we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Something that happens here that seemed to follow us in the very early stages of Monoreal Radio that we haven't seen for a while is a film opening on a book. What's shocking about that, though, is that this is based on a true story. And every time it was a fiction that Disney adapted, Sleeping Beauty, The Jungle Book, even Enchanted did a spoof of it. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that that was an interesting choice. It was. And I actually love the opening because I love the artwork because the opening of the film with the opening credits, it shows like scenes from Davy Crockett's history, but the artwork is stunning and it just looks so good. Like to this day, it still looks incredible. Yeah. It's, it's a really impressive opening sequence. Um, back to the book though. I think the, the reason that they chose to do that was because it, it's very subtle, but it says that it's Davy Crockett's journal. So I think what they were trying to do here was actually start to separate the man and the myth a little bit, which is so interesting because later in the film, they become very self-aware and Davy is given a book of his own folklore and they wrote a story about, or they use the phrase being the toughest something on, on this side of the Rockies or yeah. whatever it was they said. And he's like, I've never even been to the Rockies. Yeah, so they do call out the fact that history and manufactured history certainly do blend together. Disney was way ahead of their time with that one because now we have clickbait. Yeah, for sure. Some people will debate out of the shoot whether or not the film holds up because to get to the opening scene... As they're sort of explaining, because they're singing the song, we'll talk about the song in a few minutes. Uh, as they're kind of singing their way through the beginning of Davy's story to pick it up right before he joins Andrew Jackson, they're talking about the fighting with the Native Americans, and an animated flaming arrow <laughs> hits a book page and sets it on fire to uh, illustrate the start of the Creek War. So a lot of people from the jump are probably going to be turned off here. Um, I think certainly you can make the case that, I mean, it dates the movie right away. It definitely does. And I think a lot of the language that they use dates the movie right away. I don't want, I don't want you to, think that I feel a certain way about the movie. I don't want to spoil my review. But it's like from the jump, it's like, yeah, I, I can see where people certainly are kind of surprised that this would be on Disney+. Plus. But I think it, it definitely justifies that like 13 second disclaimer before the movie begins. It certainly does. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, too, because you have that animation used as a transition. And then it's a very serious tone when they're talking about him joining up with Andrew Jackson. And then by the time we meet Davy, it's the folklore, right? He's grinning down a bear, which we don't actually see. All we see is a bush and he's supposed to be behind it with a bear. And I teeter back and forth because... You know, we had mentioned it before that they're trying to separate the man from the myth. And I feel like this was kind of a weird way to go about it because 
I actually would have liked them to keep up this larger than life mystery about him. Like if all of the, if all of the lore was just alluded to and people spoke about it, but Davy never actually acknowledged any of it. I think that would have been far more interesting than trying to cheat this happening and making us believe that he's actually doing it. Personally, I actually like the way that this intro is done. Okay. Because, I mean, look, it's Davy Crockett killing a bear with nothing but a knife and some stick to That's exactly what Davy Crockett is. You're right. I think that there is validity to you hear a bear growl and you see a bush shake. But I there's there's I think a very clear line where most of the money went to make this film. We'll talk about a lot of that in a little while. But I sort of like the fact that you know what Davy's doing and he comes out and it's just him with that bloody knife, I think is a great intro to a character because it's really the first time you're seeing him on screen in a major motion picture. I feel like, like I think about if, like if I was my dad's age, age three or four, and you know the story of Davy Crockett because it's folklore and you see this on television for the first time or in a movie theater, this is like, well, of course, this is Davy Crockett. Well, I think that's what kind of ruined it for me is that the bush shakes and it cheapens the story down. If we had if they had just shown Andrew Jackson's army coming up in the canoe and Davy stepped out of the bush with a bloody knife, I think it would have been so much more effective than seeing the bush shake. Like we all know what he's doing. And then, you know, um, Russell could have talked him up like, oh, yeah, this is business as usual. It's a Tuesday. So, of course, he killed a bear. Right. Yeah, I guess. But you're trying to build up the excitement. You're trying to establish this character. So I think they sort of wanted to call to attention that it is the tale of Davy Crockett grinning down a bear. Yes, but at the same time, if you're going to call yourself out later with the book of folklore and say none of this is all none of this is true, people elaborated these stories. I actually think it would have been more effective now if Russell was sort of confirming, yes, this is what he does, but the legends just grew and grew and grew until they became out of control. It would have been interesting if they sort of used that George Russell character as somebody that sort of acted as the tongue-in-cheek character, right? Like, I mean, he is, but I'm saying, like, if... If he was the tongue-in-cheek character in terms of we don't really know where the blurred line is, what's what's true to history and what has just come as as the folklore has expanded and expanded over the years. Right, because he Russell is such a solid sidekick, but if he was the one who was watching the truth and then talking out of the other side of his mouth and spinning the, the yarn and sort of starting the game of telephone that launched all of these rumors, that would have been funny. That that would have been some good comedy in here. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about really these few scenes that open the film. I mean, the movie does not hold back, right? It really doesn't with the battle scenes. It's a huge cast. I mean, it's a ton of extras, but... Other than the fact that these guys are just firing guns into thin air at times, which is sort of a trope of a lot of these westerns, the the battle itself is really kind of startling. It make it would make sense to me if it was just a theatrical run, right? If it was just something that was in the theaters made for the theaters. We'll talk about this in a little while and whether it hurts the pacing or not, but this was actually a series of 3 stories shot for television shown on Walt Disney's Disneyland and it did so well that they put them together and released it in the theaters so it like for something that was made for a theatrical release these battles these fights it kind of makes sense but this was on national television in 1955 
Yeah. To give this a little bit of context, I feel like this is sort of what Walking Dead would be now for television. But obviously that show grew so much and now there's such a big budget behind it and the spinoffs. Back in the day, you wouldn't have seen something like this that had a big budget behind it to be made just for television. The movie was the movies was where your budget was going to be. Right. Um, so it was pretty groundbreaking in that regard. What impressed me about the action scene is that um, for the most part, they shot a lot of this on location. So you see a lot of these battles taking place and you actually have all these extras that are on the hill and you can see they're really struggling to gain their footing while they're in the brush and they're trying to fire the weapons. Um, so I was surprised that they, I mean, they like really went for it. However, the other end of that is when you get into some of these close-up fighting sequences, they are very clunky. Um, the setups take forever. The fight choreography is certainly not as polished as we know it to be today where there is a back and forth and you know when you put this up against something like Captain America fighting himself in Endgame it it doesn't hold a candle you know uh so so the setups it does feel like it drags because the setups take a really long time yeah one of those you know guy's gonna punch somebody because like he does like the big he winds up. up yeah but is this a product of poor filmmaking or is this a product of filmmaking in 1955? I, I feel like it's just 1955. No, but I don't see why that would be acceptable because you could fix, and I hate to say this, you could fix it in post with some sharp editing, but I've said this before about the films of the period with Treasure Island and Swiss Family Robinson they did a lot of wide shots and they didn't punch in for close-ups. So if you had more wide coverage and then varied your shots and your angles a little bit more, you'd have more options to cut away so you don't see things like the wind-ups or the, the lifts when they're going to throw somebody over their shoulder. But then funnily enough, you get a really clunky scene like that and it's juxtaposed with Davy almost being scalped and blood is gushing from his head oh, like literally yeah. gushing from his head yeah i mean and you see scalps they show scalps yeah for as clunky as the fighting is the special effects in that scene are absolutely unbelievable because they don't cut away from it at all like you see him get cut you see the blood start that that was very impressive it was impressive and I mean, I guess when it comes to the wind-up and sort of the clunky setups, I wonder sometimes, as I was watching this, because I noticed it as well, other than is this filmmaking in 1955, were they sort of trying to make it, I don't want to call it cartoony, because it's, I mean, it's not, it's not cartoony at all, but I wonder if they were trying to build up the excitement, like, with the wind-up, like, oh, here comes Davey with his with his knife, here comes Davy throwing a punch, here comes Davy picking up a hatchet, like, to, like, excite the kids who are going to sit there and watch this folklore American hero. That's a fair point. But if it was just Davy, I would argue that that was a stylistic element. Everybody was doing it. You saw every setup. Very true. Very true. And then you go from this really brutal fight scene to Davy at home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so interesting because you know the folklore of Davy Crockett. You know the name more than you really even know about the real man. So you forget. Not only do you forget that he was a real person, but you forget that he had a family. Like, he actually was a family man. So to see Davy at home with his wife and kids and how he's just setting them up so that he can go back out, that's the thing. You know, because his, you know, Polly says to him, when does this end? When are you coming home? And he's so matter-of-fact about everything. I love how matter-of-fact he is about it. It's such, like, an interesting sort of slice of life 
when you get to that scene when he's home after that battle. Pacing wise, I will agree with you. And it ends up being a very good scene. But getting into that scene, Russell saved Davy after he had his head sliced open. And in kind of a one-off line, he's like, oh, that's going to earn you a kiss from my girl or something like that. However right. the, you know, old-timey phrasing was. Um, so he brings Russell home and he allows him to kiss his wife. Like, the treatment of Davy's wife is as bad as that of indigenous people in this movie. Everything is being treated like property here. But then you get this really sweet moment between the two of them that night where they're kind of talking through and she's begging him to stay home and be the family man. So for what ends up being a really nice scene, it makes the film feel extremely dated. What does impress me, though, is that anytime there is a scene with his family, the pacing is flawless because it's juxtaposed against one of the battle scenes or something major happening to Davy. And then they pull you back into his family life and they give you a little bit of breathing room, which is great for a film. And it totally works here, but it's kind of mind blowing to think that this was made for television because these family beats are placed so perfectly with throughout the film. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the whole thing, right? Is, they're placed so perfectly, but that's because they're trying to really hammer home that Davy is about family and country, and that he's he's making sacrifices now so that he doesn't have to make sacrifices later. And I think that they were they using the family sort of like a cliffhanger. You know what I'm saying? Like perhaps they were because they were trying to end it on a very emotional note. That's the only thing I could think. You're right because. For a theatrical film, it makes sense, but it could be a bit jarring if you're watching this as a television series, let's say over the course of three nights, and it just ends there. Right, because, I mean, you definitely can tell, as far as a film goes and a three-act structure, you can totally tell where one episode starts and ends and the next one is beginning, and I think that's actually where the song came from because that's what bridges all of these uh, vignettes together. But just as far as the family goes, I don't think that they ever did really leave it on a cliffhanger, especially when you find out that Polly dies. It's such a sucker punch because you know that she wants him to be home. He does go home for the winter to set them up again. And then in the, what I guess was the next television show, but it's the second act of the film, they're trying to purchase land. He's trying to bring his family out. He wants to send for them and bring them to this new homestead. And then you find out that she's that she got sick and she didn't make it. Um, so I think it would come as a shock no matter what, even if you are watching this on television. But now that they've had this whole buildup because we've seen the slice of life at home, it really does come as sort of a shock. Especially because I think that the timing of it, in regards to the film, I think the timing of her death is perfect. Right. Because you are trying to establish Davy as this folklore hero, but you're also trying to make him so endearing and so likable. Because what happens leading into this is... George Russell is captured by Red Stick. Davy fights Red Stick and gets him to sign the land treaty. Right. Now, the thing is, there's a really incredible line here where Red Stick does not want to sign a land treaty because I, I believe the line from Red Stick is, white man's government tells lie. And Davy goes... Couldn't agree more, Red Stick. And he goes, Davy says... But Davy Crockett don't lie. Yeah. It's such a great line and it's such a great character moment because it shows you. I mean, this was somebody that Davy Crockett was literally trying to kill him five minutes earlier because they were going to kill George. And he is still willing to look past that and say, let's sign the treaty and I will make sure that 
you are not lied to, that you're not taken advantage of. It's such an incredible character moment for Davy's integrity that when Polly dies, it is such a sucker punch to the gut because you are watching the development of Davy Crockett from somebody that you heard about through folklore and storybooks to somebody that it's actually it's tangible now because you're watching him on screen. You can put a face to this. You're actually you, it's not the same, you know, it's not the real person, but you're seeing him in action. This this character, this iconic character has come to life. So that when he loses his wife, it serves to make him even more endearing. Right. And as far as the character arc is going too, you've gone from war hero to now really helping push America forward into the next phase of developing this country, but trying to do it, as you said, with integrity. The only thing that happens after here that other than some of the outdated language and some of the stereotypes and tropes, things start really coming at you very quick here. And this is where it very much feels feels like something that was shot for television because now he's gone from being a war hero to losing his wife. Okay, now you're going to be a politician and now you're going to get these land treaties and now you're going to this and now you're going to... It, it happens sort of so fast to the point that it's jarring and at times it's sort of hard to keep up with. See, I didn't feel that way at all because I sort of feel like losing his wife would have triggered him to pivot a little bit. And I don't think that that's how it happened, uh, how it actually happened historically. Right. Um, But story-wise, I kind of see where this would have been a moment for him to stop and take a breath and say, maybe I should slow down. Because he eventually does remarry and um in in real life right and um i believe his new wife came into the marriage with kids so he had his from his first marriage her kids and then they had more so he actually was a family man because this is the last time we hear about the kids and right. then he pursues his career in the government right because we know in the letter that his sister-in-law took the kids and they're doing well is basically all she says they're doing well and then that's it. That's that's his jumping off point for pursuing a, a career as a politician. Right. So even though it's historically inaccurate, I think story wise, the trajectory works for him. I think it does. I, and I think it certainly does for a film. And I think it does for television, especially, too, because he's got this kind of aw shucks campaign going where he'll stand up in front of a room and he's so charismatic and he's not trying to be. He's just trying to speak to everyone the same way he would be talking to Russell. Just as if it's a one-on-one conversation. I'm a humble guy from humble beginnings, and I just want what's best for my country. And the more he speaks, the more he sort of like trips over himself because He's not trying to persuade anyone, but the more he's talking, the more they like him. Um, And I think, again, story-wise, that sort of lends to he just lost his wife, so he has nothing to lose anymore. And I think that that's why, you know, this, this legend pursuing a career as a politician, why as an audience we're able to believe that more now. Yeah, and I think that it works for the character that, and I know it kind of sounds weird that I'm talking about the character when he was a real person, but for the sake of talking about a film, he's a character. It works for the character that he is kind of that everyday common man. He is that blue-collar pioneer, right? And he forages his own food, not unlike anybody else, but like he's just so skilled with everything. And he can talk to anybody, whether it's a settler like himself or a pioneer, whether it's a politician, whether it's a Native American, whether it's this, whether it's that, a child, an adult. They make him this endearing, everyday sort of man. This, you know, everybody can gravitate to you character because, as I pointed out before, 
he's fighting Red Stick, and 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 minutes later, he's got him signing a peace treaty that he says, "I'm going to make sure that this land treaty gets followed." And he fights Bigfoot Mason because he finds out Mason is taking Native American land. And then he becomes a politician. And he finds out that Norton has this this bill on the table to undo the land treaty. And he tears it up and gets a round of applause and basically kamikazes his political career. But that's because Davy Crockett don't lie. So I think the way that they set all of this up and the way that they steer everything towards this moment... Because really, the whole thing with him becoming a politician is for that moment where he tears the bill up. It just works so well. And I think that if you if you really think about it, a jump from being a, a, a soldier to being a politician, it, it sort of seems like a quick jump because, as I said earlier, they're throwing things at you really fast. But it works with this payoff. It definitely does. It works for the character because he is such a persuasive speaker and that's kind of what you expect from a politician especially nowadays is a good speaker is going to get you to buy into anything that they're saying but the difference is that like you said Davy don't lie and you actually can believe him and can trust him to maintain that integrity that got him there and that he is going to follow through on what he promised to do. Right. And once his political career comes to an end, when he tears that treaty up, it's, all right, I'm going to go fight at the Alamo. You know, I'm going to go and I'm going to leave this sort of cushy lifestyle because Davy don't lie and I'm not going to turn my back on the people that I promised I'd keep this treaty to. And naturally... Off goes the suit and tie, and on goes the coonskin hat, and off he goes to the Alamo. It's just an incredible moment for the character in the story that he would just not only give all of it up, he knows he's giving all of it up, but he doesn't even go back home to the family to go raise his kids and be safe. He wants to go fight for his country again. Let me grab my gun and go to the Alamo. It's an incredible moment for the character. Speaking of this scene at the Alamo, though, (laughs) um, you can make the case that mistakes were made for a couple of reasons. The first, and a lot of it didn't come to light until after the film had been made, so perhaps that also serves to date the movie. Um, There has been controversy as to what was Davy's actual fate at the Alamo, the real Davy Crockett. There are people that say that he did go down fighting. There are people that say that he was captured and executed. There were people that said that he surrendered and executed. We know that he died at the Alamo of age 40, at age 49. That happened. So what Disney does here is basically he just grabs his knife and runs off screaming and the book closes. Which I guess is the way to do it it's sort of an ambiguous ending because they didn't really want to say one way or the other and i think at the same time you you're not going to show the character you know the title character dying on television he just runs off into battle and we know what happens from there or at least is what disney is leading you to believe i don't mind that they left it ambiguous especially because historically we don't know what really happened necessarily um But story-wise, I mean, they've taken everybody out at this point. They've taken out George Russell. Davy is literally the last man standing, and there is no way that he could possibly survive this, despite how many times they threw those ladders and recycled the shot when the enemy (laughs) was approaching. Um, So I don't necessarily mind that they left it open-ended because... They they held our hands right there that he's not going to make it. No matter how he goes out, we didn't need to see it. Same way as I didn't need to see the bear. Sure. The other mistake that was made, and I mean, look, it was 1955. You didn't have a lot of sequels getting made, but I mean, you if you're Walt Disney, you kind of have to know that 
if this is really successful, you're going to want to keep telling Davy Crockett's stories, which is kind of hard to do when you killed him. And Walt did regret that. He has gone on record saying that he never would have killed him if he knew how popular he was going to be. But what's funny about that is that's thinking in terms, and especially looking at it now, when all we know are sequels and remakes. If this was an ongoing television series, I mean, you're going to make as many episodes as you can before you kill him off. But to hear him say that about the success of this film, I just think it's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they could have done this as a television series the way they did, say, like a Zorro, because we talked before about, like, where a lot of the money got spent. I think a lot of it got spent on the cast size. I think a lot of it got spent because it was shot on location in California and Tennessee, and I think they did a little bit in North Carolina as well. Um, yeah, the Great Smoky Mountains, they did a lot. But I mean, the costumes and the sets are insane. Like, to this day... I think they both hold up really well. So I don't quite know that you could have kept that up at that cost to do a television series. If you were going to spin it off into cinema, that would make sense. But I don't think that he was thinking that far ahead. I don't think Roy would have allowed him to keep doing this for, for television alone. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's up to Roy... They would have ducked out after like one episode. Right. Um, yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. What I'm just confused about is let's say for argument's sake, they had like a 12 episode season that they had signed up for or whatever. And it was wildly successful. You decide you're going to put it in the films. Why end with this one? Yes. Why not take, okay, let's say this is the last one they shot. I mean, that would make sense, right? Because right. he dies. Why not take, a, it, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily in sequential order, episodes one to three and then four to six. If you're going to just grab different episodes, just hold that one for the very end. And then you could have had multiple films because the reason that they released this was because of the success of the television shows. So, it still went on to make over a million dollars in the box office, which doesn't sound like that much by today's standards, right. but back then it certainly was. So if your idea was to capitalize on the success of the television show, why not plan to do four movies? Yeah, especially because it's not uncommon that these actors and actresses would get signed to a contract and they'd be contracted with the studio. So you know that when you sign Fess Parker to be Davy Crockett, you know that he's yours for a while. So you, and you have to know, and I guess this is why Walt Disney went on record saying he regretted killing him. I guess if you wanted, if you were like gonna do three vignettes, and it was only going to be three, naturally you would show him at the Alamo because you're gonna take the three most well-known stories. Sure. But knowing that there's a chance, I, I mean, even at least a slight chance, that you're gonna keep telling the story, like, in retrospect, for Walt Disney did not admit that he made a lot of mistakes. So if he admitted that he made a mistake here, he must have truly believed that he messed this one up. Yeah, seriously. I don't think anybody went into films back in the day knowing that they were going to do a sequel. I mean, it's completely different now. And I think it's hard for people to wrap their minds around being that everything is a franchise film. Studios don't want to make films anymore unless they're franchise. But can you imagine something like, obviously they didn't know how successful it was going to be, but even if you had an inkling that Pirates was going to do even half as well as it did, right? Right. You're not going to kill Jack Sparrow off on that, small chance well they know that now but they know that now because things like this happened you know what i'm saying like i think that part of this you can attribute to primitive film primitive television and we have gotten used to as you pointed out everything is a franchise now and it's kind of a shame that Studios don't want to make something if it's not a franchise because they're not thinking about the one and done. They're thinking about the trilogy and then the prequels. And then we can put it on a lunchbox and sell a Halloween costume. And, and listen, I mean, I think they certainly sold enough Halloween costumes and 
coonskin hats. I mean, every kid, from my understanding, every little boy wanted to have one because they all wanted to be Davy Crockett. Um, but you're right. It's just not something that you see anymore. But I, while it was a mistake and Walt admitted it, and you can sit here and sort of, you can be a Monday morning quarterback about it now and sort of wonder, like, why you did that. At the same time, I mean, I sort of, I sort of get it because they weren't thinking on those terms. It, it's just, it's hard now to sit there and say, how couldn't you think on those terms? But I mean, if it wasn't such an expensive endeavor, you know, if they were doing it cheaper like Azoro, then yeah, of course they're not going to kill him off in the third episode. This is something that I wish they could do a show on Disney Plus to fill in sort of some of these holes for us about the method to the madness and not even what Walt was thinking, but as a studio, what they were thinking, because even a show like prop culture, for example, is never going to be able to dive into something like this, unfortunately, because aside from his hat, there's not enough iconic props from this movie that they could dig up. Uh, You know, it's not something like Mary Poppins where there's so many specific props that were made specifically for that film where there's a story behind each one. This was just, like we said, for all intents and purposes, a Western. You could go to any prop house and and rent all of, you know, the guns and the costumes and this and that. The prop houses had them lying around. Right. So I feel like a show like that would be the closest we could ever come to learning more about some of these decisions. And the shame of it is, is that these films are so old now, there's really not a people, a lot of people left who could help fill in these gaps. Right, and Dan Lanigan had told us that when we did speak to him, when we reviewed prop culture, you know, you kind of want to work on, you want to showcase films where A, you can get the props, but B, you can hear the stories behind the props and the production. Something like this, certainly you'd be hard-pressed. I mean, maybe the actors that played his children and maybe you had some people working on set that are still around, but, I mean, yeah, by and large, there's nobody left that's going to discuss what it was like working on this. Right, and that's that's the thing. I'm saying prop culture is the closest show that, that would come to doing something like this. You couldn't even make a whole nother series, like the way that they're doing behind the attraction. I don't even know that you could do you know, behind a film like this, not certainly not with firsthand accounts. I mean, maybe you could do something with a Disney historian, but um, I don't know. It's just something I'm so interested in, in learning about because even, you know, take away the franchise films, take away what we know now. uh, It just sort of blows my mind (laughs) that they would kill him off and put this as your, your leading film. All right, let's talk about the some of the cast here. This is a massive cast. We literally cannot talk about the whole thing. But we're going to talk about a few of the really important players here, like our title character, Davy Crockett, played by Fess Parker. Fess Parker was so good in this film. I felt that his integrity was outstanding. I felt that he really had his finger on the pulse of who this character was. I think he knew the gravity of having to live up to the hype because he had gone on record after the film had come out saying that he was not comfortable at all with the level of fame that he gained because he said, you can't go out and have a meal. You can't go shopping. You can't go anywhere without mobs. I mean, mobs of people that would just surround him constantly. Yeah, I feel like the modern audience doesn't understand how much of a phenomenon this was for the time. Yeah, and and the thing is, what's so impressive about him is that in spite of the fact that he was never really comfortable with it, he took a lot of it on the chin because he said, I don't want to disappoint the kids. I don't want the kids to ever find out that Davy Crockett was mean to them because they look at me as their hero. That's really impressive. And that's where, you know, I was going to say, I feel like he did as good a job 
as far as like disappearing into the role as Johnny Depp did with Jack Sparrow, where you don't feel I'm watching an actor portray this person. I feel like I am watching this person. Um, no, I, I love what they did character wise. I mean, how accurate it was personality wise to Davy Crockett. I don't know, but I think as far as just having this reluctant hero and the man behind the myth, I think that they did such a great job of creating that balancing act. Um, and I'll be honest, the first time that we watched this, the film wasn't really holding my interest that much, but his performance is what kept me interested in it. Yeah. Buddy Epson plays George Russell. This Buddy Epson actually was one of the actors that they had originally thought to cast as Davy Crockett. Um, it, I don't think it would have worked. I don't see it. But I do like him as the sort of lighthearted, but at the same time, very stern and supportive sidekick here to Davy Crockett. He was such a solid counterpart, and the chemistry between the actors was wonderful, too. Like, I, I really believed that friendship, and I really believed that George Russell was, he, he was a ride or die. Yeah, and I think he just pulled it off really well. Helen Stanley plays Polly Crockett. You don't get a lot of time with her, but for the time that you do have with her, as you said earlier, because of the way she's treated and because of her ultimate untimely passing, I think that she was an endearing character. You could tell that she was a very strong maternal figure because... She sort of is, even though she's married and he's supporting them, She, at the same time, she's sort of like a single mother because she's raising these two boys, which you know is not an easy task, while he's off fighting the war, but somehow she's holding it all together until she literally can't anymore. I thought she did a really good... She, I think the character was great, and I think that she did a good job carrying the role. Right, or even something like when when Russell kisses her... Once she realizes that he saved Davy's life, it's almost like she's putting her own personal conflict aside to do her patriotic duty. But that lends to what you said about her being like an anchor for Davy and being that strong maternal figure. And Helen Stanley is just absolutely gorgeous. When you think of like an old Hollywood classic beauty, she's it. She looks amazing in this for the short time that we get her on film. She looks amazing. William Bakewell plays Tobias uh, Norton, and I thought he did a good job with the character. This you never really trust this character, which is what I like about him. It's it, he doesn't ever have a quality, even when he and Davy are on the same side fighting for Andrew Jackson. There's just something about him that you know you can't trust, and when it comes time for this bill, you know that ultimately your instincts were correct and the payoff was there and I thought that he was a good antagonist in this film. For all of the people that Davy has to fight, I thought that he was a really good antagonist. Right. Not that the film has a clear-cut villain, but you said it perfectly. He is an antagonist because there's just always something in your gut where where you just kind of know he's shysty and you don't 100% trust him. Pat Hogan plays Chief Redstick. I thought that, um, you know, while perhaps, yes, the 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 uh, character's title is certainly outdated, um, I thought that he was really good as well. Uh, he's, he's I, I thought he was physically imposing. I thought that he was intimidating. Uh, he had a lot of intensity, actually, like a lot of intensity. But I love the relationship that he does form, albeit very quick, with Davy after Davy does get him to sign this land treaty. I thought that this was a really good character that obviously, as I've said almost at nauseum at this point, serves to set up what happens once Davy becomes a politician. Uh, it's definitely worth noting because when I first heard Pat Hogan, I thought that they had whitewashed this role, but Pat Hogan is actually a stage name for Thurman Lee Haas, who is the actor that played Chief Redstick. And um, he was actually a member of the Oneida Indian tribe. 
So kudos to Disney because they were always progressive in that regard. And they actually did honor the role by casting an indigenous actor. Hans Conried plays Thimblerig. It's funny that you, when you think about the Alamo, you don't think anything about that would be funny. But Thimblerig, in spite of the fact that that is truly a horrific scene for all of our characters and was a horrific thing in American history, somehow he he lightens the moment. Thimblerig is the thespian we didn't know we needed in this film. He's just so over the top and so overdramatic, and he instantly became one of my favorite things about this film. Uh, j- just the name, though, Thimblerig, it sounds like something from Cats. <laughs> I, okay. I've never seen Cats, and I have no desire to see Cats. No, you're going to. I, I want to, one of these days, we're going to sit down and see Judy Dench's hand. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, Thimblerig the Thespian. The song. Let's just talk about the song. It's so iconic. It's like you can't escape it. It was a massive radio hit at the time. I mean, even in Back to the Future, you hear it playing through the jukebox in 1955 when Marty goes to the diner and runs into his father for the first time. Was the song bigger than the movie? I'm going to say yes, because I think this is the starting point of where I was grossly misled. I remember singing this in chorus as a kid and like I wasn't electively a member of the chorus I I'm talking about like yeah in elementary school I think it was called music like you had a music class the same way that you had gym yeah I think that's where it all started for me I think you're right the the song is bigger than the actual film like as uh, nowadays I maybe at the time they were sort of in equal measure but I think that as time has gone on like I said at the time of this recording, 66 years later, I feel that the song has outlived the actual film. Because I think even a kid today knows the lyrics, Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. And that's where you kind of start to learn about him is it's all the myths from this song. That's why you have that association. With, okay, so all of that being said, the song at this point has outlived the film. But does the film hold up? Is, is the film still relevant? Is it, it's, 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 is it something that somebody can still watch today? You Do you want to go first? Do you want me to have my say? I'll go first. Okay. Um... I mean, aside from the wrongs that need to be corrected, the obvious wrongs that need to be corrected, uh, it's not a perfect story. I mean, you can feel every bit of this being three separate shorts that they merged into one, uh, which is okay because we got the song out of it. Um... I, I had said it before, upon first viewing, I had a really tough time focusing and I, I just like couldn't get into it. But I think that it's worth watching. If you want to watch like an older Walt era film, it's worth watching just for the performance and for the main character. Is it a great film? No. It's kind of weighted down with things like the clunky fight scenes and there are parts that feel like they drag a little bit but I think you'd be hard pressed not to be entertained just for the performance given by the main characters so it's I have literally that exact note written down do you really everything about the movie just about everything about the movie is good I think the story is good. I think the sets are good. I think the score is good. I think the scene, the fight scenes are good. I think the costumes and all that are good. I think that the language of it is outdated. And that's something that we're seeing now with 
certain teams having to change names, change mascots. I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here and say it was 1955, deal with it, but it was 1955. Okay, a lot of things change. Like, this is what history is. You kind of learn from this history, right? So, yes, there there are aspects of this that are not up to date. But the characters are the best part. And the actors are the best part. And they carry the film enough where, in spite of the fact that I think the younger generation that are a little bit more up to speed with things as they are current day. I think they would have, I think they'd cringe at a lot of things, but I think they have to understand why you cringe at them now. This is part of the learning process, but I don't think it should take away overall from the film that these actors and everybody included did make, because I think they did make a good movie. I think that, I think that you kind of have to know a lot about Davy Crockett going into it to sort of follow along. And I think part of that does come from the fact that this was three vignettes put together and things kind of move a little janky at times. But overall, is it a movie I'm going to go back and watch over and over and over again? No, it's it's not going to be Swiss Family Robinson. It's not going to be Treasure Island. But is it something that I sh- that I would recommend people go back and watch? Yeah, go ahead. Go back and watch it. It's like you said. It's a good movie. It's going to entertain people. And certainly the cast is the best part about it. Right. Good, not great. As a character study, though, it's incredible. Yes. Like for that alone, definitely watch it. Does it deserve a remake to right some wrongs? Yeah, absolutely. I could see if, if they did something... And I'm not saying this needs to be a musical, God, no. But if they did something like a Hamilton, where you really, no, 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 no. Where you really, like, punched up the supporting cast, too, and show how, yes, he's your lead, but there were so many people who helped him get there. I could see something like that. Like, if you put together a really solid ensemble cast and tell this story, I could see them doing something like that. No, I want to see a mountain man with a knife kill a bear or a bar with his bare hands. I'm not saying Davy Crockett needs to rap. I'm just saying if you wanted to do a solid period piece, there are so many great characters that didn't get a lot of screen time that could really amp this up. I think this movie could be remade. I think that you could get a good enough cast together, and I think you can retell this story because there are so many of them and there's such folklore around him. And you know what? Like, in a way, it's kind of a shame that the kids aren't running around nowadays with coonskin hats. I mean, we did it as kids, but that's because our parents were raised on this. I remember kids being dressed up as Davy Crockett for Halloween when I was in elementary school. You don't see it anymore. I think there is a place in present day for Davy Crockett. And I'd really like to see them take a shot at it. And I don't say that often. More times than not, I will say don't remake a film. I think there is a place nowadays for a Davy Crockett remake. When we want to know what you have to say about Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, you can let us know your thoughts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly checked for discounts to make sure we were guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was 
perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you would like to live out your own Davy Crockett story in Frontierland, get in touch with me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. News of the Week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. Whether you are a Disney content creator, you're looking for some home decor, perhaps you've got an event coming up. You need save the dates, invitations, thank you cards, table numbers. Kelly has you covered. Plus, listeners of the show get a discount of 10% with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to go to the website and see everything that Kelly has to offer at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Could Davy Crockett get a remake on Disney Plus? Could they do it as a television show? Perhaps they could. Where, do you ask, could they work on this? Perhaps at the new Walt Disney Studios opening in Vancouver. You had to know that this was coming. But I think that it's truly incredible that less than two years into the existence of Disney Plus, that they would open up a studio focused on long-form series for Disney Plus. Basically, Disney Plus is getting its own studio. I think that's incredible. If you think about how quickly this came about. Yeah, I mean, part of me, I'm not going to lie, is brokenhearted because I was so hoping that they would start utilizing the facilities in Florida again, uh, you know, especially there was a lot of talk about that after or during the pandemic, really, because people were working remotely and the taxes in California, that's why you've seen so much of the film industry move to places like Georgia and Louisiana. And it's being taken out of California because the taxes are so high. Uh, so it's certainly not a surprise that they were looking for another location. Vancouver has become Hollywood North. There it are has, a yeah. ton of production facilities up there. So definitely not a surprise, but I was really hoping that they would bring it home to Florida. I thought there was a chance of that because they moved so many people from uh, Burbank and Anaheim down to Orlando. Maybe for post-production. Well, maybe. Well, the existing studio in Burbank is going to house the team for Disney Animation uh, for feature films and for short form series. They are going to do a musical series based on Moana. That's going to be first up at this new studio. Um, I mean, would I have liked to have seen them go to Disney's Hollywood Studios? I would for nostalgia's sake. But I just don't see how it would have been possible. That's the only thing. You took the back lot tore down you've you took the hangers down a lot of them yeah so that you can do uh toy story land and galaxy's edge i just don't think it would have been feasible it makes sense that they would go to vancouver because as you said it's hollywood north um but i'm just saying like to me even more incredible than the fact that they're opening another studio is that they're doing it exclusively for this Disney Plus content less than two years into the existence of Disney Plus. Well, I mean, they also shot past their projections for the subscriptions. Yeah, I mean... You're really gonna... Nothing is slowing this train down. That's the thing. Like, knowing what we know now about how they got their five-year number in a year, it's not that surprising, but at the same time, sitting here two years ago, when we were on the verge of the launch of Disney+, Plus, when Monorail Radio was in its infancy, if you would have told me then, hey, two years from now, they're building an entire new studio just for Disney+, Plus, I would have thought you're crazy. You know what, though? I think it's actually pretty smart to do it in Vancouver, too, because there's a lot less hoopla for the actors to deal with. It's this is true. a little bit more private. People aren't... I mean, everybody knows... Things are shot in Atlanta now. So you got the paparazzi everywhere. Uh, I think this might be a little bit more of a secluded workspace for them. Yeah, perhaps. And we want to know what you have to say about this 
really it's groundbreaking literally and formatively you know literally and kind of figuratively groundbreaking news that Disney is getting another studio in Vancouver you can let us know on Twitter Instagram and Facebook at Monoreal Radio or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com and let's not forget we had a contest last week thank you for everybody who entered this great uh prize pack from Monoreal Radio and our friends over at the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. The winner of this month's prize pack is Jenna S. Jenna, congratulations. We will reach out to you via social media to get your contact information, your shipping information, and we will get your prize pack out to you. Now, if you want to win another prize pack, you know, just be patient for a couple of weeks. We got another one coming up. We have some good stuff coming up. Yeah. Oh, man. I can't wait to show you guys some of what we have coming your way. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. Of course, follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. And for links to everything, you can find it at our home at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.